Okay, welcome to Pro Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Craig Doman. I've got a special guest today, someone that is right up my alley, someone that's been working with professional athletes for a long time, someone that's worked with the best of the best, Alan Stein. Alan, welcome to the show today. Oh, it's great to be with you, Craig. I'm looking forward to a fun chat, my friend. Okay, Alan. So Alan, just so you all know, he is uh, an author, a speaker, a performance coach, among many things, I'm sure. So we're just going to jump right in here, Alan. Why don't you share with everyone the framework for for that person that's only got three minutes? They want to maximize their success. They've got a big opportunity on the horizon. What is your secret sauce for that? Well, I believe the foundation of a, a pro mindset and a winner's mindset is just making a commitment to doing the best you can with what you have wherever you are. Like full stop. Do the best you can with what you have wherever you are. And the, the reason that I like this is my own personal operating system is it eliminates a trilogy of behaviors um, that undermine our performance and undermine our productivity and undermine our fulfillment. And that's blaming, complaining, and making excuses. Uh, when you take an, an attitude of extreme ownership and you hold yourself fully responsible and you, you reduce the temptation to blame, complain, and make excuses, um, then you become emotionally resilient and emotionally agile. And if you're not emotionally agile, then you're emotionally fragile. And there's no way someone can perform at the level they're capable of if they're emotionally fragile. Well, one of the things that I think that really um, baffles coaches in every level of sports is they have a great practice plan. They've got a great game plan. They've, they've executed all the plays, all the strategies for the, in preparation for the game. And then in that big moment when there's a little bit more writing on that shot or that play, the player surprisingly fails. Even, even though he did it successfully or she did it in practice many times. What is your, you know, like being a, being a doctor of performance, what is the reasoning behind that typically? Well, well, pressure is ultimately a perception. It's the, it's the story that we tell ourselves. It's the narrative that we have, you know, it's, it's this belief that this shot is more important than all of the previous shots that we took earlier in the game. So it's really, it's rather illusory if, if you think about it. So the, the most important part is I understand that coaches put up certain frameworks and they work on different plays and they do things during practice, but they need to have that same type of mindset and practice in order for it to carry over to games. You know, I, I'm a big believer that there's uh, kind of a, a three-step construct to performing in high-pressure situations. And these are what we need to do in order to be in the present moment. You know, after all, if you want to win the moment, you have to be in the moment. And, and what I'd love to see coaches focus on specifically during practice, but then allow this to carry over to the games, uh, is first is refocus the lens on the next play. Uh, get your players to have a next play mentality. Uh, don't worry about the play that just happened. It's over. It's in the rearview mirror. It's unchangeable. You know, so if you turn the ball over or you miss an easy layup or the referee doesn't make a call, even though that wasn't your preference, we would all prefer that you didn't turn the ball over or made the shot. But that play is now over and you can't take the, the negativity from the past and put that into the present. So the first thing is quickly move to the next play. Second is put all of your focus, both players and coaches, into the only two things you have 100 percent control over 100 percent of the time. And that's your own effort and your own attitude. 
you have to, to, to learn how to let go and untether from everything else that goes on during the game. You know, as a player, you can't be worried about what your opponent is doing, what your teammates are doing, what your coach is saying, what the officials are doing, what the fans are doing. You can't worry about any of that because you have no control over it. But you absolutely have control over your effort and your attitude and, and thus, you know, your ability to execute and to make plays. So we got to refocus the lens on what we have control over. And then thirdly, uh, in both practice and in games, is focus the lens on the process. You know, obviously in sport, a finite game, the goal is to have the most points on the scoreboard when the final buzzer goes off. We all know that's who actually wins the game, but you can't be preoccupied and worried about whether or not you're going to win or lose. You got to focus on the process. You got to focus on the steps. What can you do in this moment to help your team increase the chance that they'll have the most points on the the scoreboard when it goes off. So if, if we use basketball as an example, because that was the world I lived in, you know, you don't have to worry about winning the game. All you have to worry about is winning this possession. And how do you win this possession? Well, if you're on offense, you make hard cuts, you set solid screens, you get your best shooters open to take high percentage shots. You know, when you're on defense, there, you know, there's, there's a list of things that you can do process wise, you know, things like boxing out. So don't worry about the macro and actually winning the game. Worry about what you can do in this moment to give your team a better chance to win. And if everyone can collectively do that consistently, then you increase the chance that your team will have the most points on the scoreboard. So all of these things need to be uh, conditioned and practiced and rehearsed in actual practice so that it carries over to the game. Okay. So in pro sports, I've seen this happen and play out many times. You know, I had a client, who was a defensive back who was in the, the overtime playing against Peyton Manning. And he wasn't in the moment. He had three girls in the stadium in three different sections. And it occurred to him in, in the moment before the moment, the biggest play of the game that he didn't have a plan for how he was going to sort this out. And so he was going to have, he was going to have some major headaches and Marvin Harrison beat him on a double move. For the Colts to advance in the playoffs, even though his team was 13 and three and favored in that game. So my question to you is, in pro sports, it's really an individual sport. Even though the 49ers are outstanding team, it's the sum of a lot of great players. And they all have to have their own processes, their own systems, their own habits. So how does a, how does a person, whether they're in sports or not, prepare for the being in the moment when your mind doesn't want to stay in the moment. You and me right now, we've got to stay in the moment. You've got a busy day after this. You had some things happen before this. Same with me. How can we just basically drop into this moment without being distracted by all the other stuff? Well, like most things, it takes practice and it takes repetition. Uh, if the first time someone is aware of this or the first time someone's going to try to exercise these mental skills is in the biggest play of the game, then they're in a lot of trouble. There's not a whole lot I or you or anyone else can do to help them out. What we need to do is understand that moving forward in our lives, both on the field and off the field, on the court, off the court, in business or anywhere else, we're going to have big moments in our lives and we need to start preparing for those big moments in the present. And we need to do that by conditioning ourselves and training our mind to focus on the task at hand, to learn how to block out different distractions, um, to, to be in the moment. You know, you mentioned a word earlier, systems and processes. 
I'm a big systems and processes guy. You know, uh, I'm not immune to being able to be distracted or from my mind wandering. But as you just mentioned so insightfully, right now at this time, the only thing in the world I care about is having a good conversation with you and delivering value for your audience. That's the only thing that matters to me. Now, I help my process and to, to systematize that, I've blocked out all potential distractions. My phone is off and it's in the other room. I don't have any other windows open on my browser. I don't have the TV going. I'm not folding laundry. I'm not doing anything <laughs> right now except giving you my undivided attention, which will decrease the chance that, that something is going to distract me. So some of it can come be down to the process part. Now, in this specific example, which is a very unique one, you know, uh, he should have known in advance that he invited three different women to the game sitting in three different sections. You know, he should have worried about that well before kickoff. Uh, the last moment that he wants to be thinking about that is when Peyton Manning's getting ready to throw a touchdown to Marvin Harrison. So, um, you know, part of that would have been he could have done the work beforehand. He could have done the heavy lifting and the due diligence in advance. The other thing is that that popped into his mind during the actual huddle, he needs to be able to say, look, there is absolutely nothing that I can do about that conundrum at this moment. It's something I'm going to have to deal with in the future, but I can't do anything about it right now. So if I can't do anything about it right now, I don't want it to monopolize even an ounce of my thought because now that will distract me. So I need to lock in and focus on the task at hand. And then when the game's over, I'll see if I can get myself out of that pickle. Very good, Alan. Very good. Okay, so let's talk about real stuff. Let's talk about. Um, let's say you're um, you're the you're the backup for the lead on Broadway. Um, does anybody really want to see you? Nobody wants to see you. They want to see the lead, and so when the lead gets sick, they get disappointed because they they bought these prime time tickets, and they don't even get the lead. Same things happens in football with QB two. Nobody really wants to see QB2 start the game or play the game unless QB1 is absolutely stinking it up. But if it's Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or those type of guys, Joe Montana, they are coming to see those guys. So when you're QB2 and you don't, you know your coach doesn't want you to play, you know the whole stadium doesn't want you to play, how do those guys prepare for game day? Because if they play, they, they're expected to be just as good as QB1. But honestly, their coaches, the fans, the front office, their teammates, none of them want them to play. Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting point you brought up. I've gone on record before of saying I think the single hardest position to play in all of pro sports is backup quarterback for the exact reason that you just mentioned. You have to prepare every single week as if you were going to play when odds are you're not, you know, I mean, look how many times a backup quarterback, you know, rarely gets any snaps the entire season. And yet they have to be ready at a moment's notice. So they have to do all of the film study. They have to take all of the snaps in practice. They have to know everything to be fully prepared. And yet they don't get the opportunity many times to actually showcase that preparation. So the, the mental toughness of a backup quarterback, or the, the second person, the second from the lead in a Broadway show, uh, I have nothing but admiration and respect for their level of preparation. But what they need to do is separate and say, you know, they're there to do a job. They are there. They are making a commitment to play a very specific role on their team. 
And they need to execute that role to the very best of their ability, because that's what everybody is counting on them to do. And in this specific case, their role is to always be fully prepared, be ready at a moment's notice, even if we don't call your number. So a, a, a true pro mindset would not worry for one second about what the fans' preference is. They don't care who wants to see them play and who doesn't. They don't care about TV ratings. They don't care about anything other than making a maximum contribution to their team. And the way they do that is by being prepared so that when their number is called, they can step in and help out. Because you better believe, you know, the other, you know, 68 guys on that roster will be eternally thankful that that backup quarterback stepped in with that level of preparation and hopefully would be able to seamlessly lead them to a win even when the starting QB went out. So I, I, I think that would be one of the hardest positions to be in. Um, it's kind of like telling a, a kid in high school, you need to study for the test every time, but we're not even going to give you the test every time. You know, just study every Friday. And one of these Fridays, we might actually give you the test. It can be a demotivator if you don't have that winner's mindset. So it comes down to taking pride in your work, taking pride in the role that you're given, even if it's not your preference. I assume if you you actually put a lie detector test on all of the backup quarterbacks in the NFL, they would all prefer to be the starter. That's that's human nature. That's competitive spirit. But they have to acknowledge I'm not the starter. You know, the coach is the one that makes that decision. And while I would prefer to start, I'm still going to do the best that I'm capable of in my role as a backup, which means I will always be prepared. And, and if they need extra motivation, they can look at somebody like Tom Brady, who, as we all know, was a backup until Drew Bledsoe got hurt. And then Tom Brady never left the field again for the next 20 years. Absolutely. Very well. Very good. Very well said. Let me ask you this. One of the most important things is to define what winning means. I mean, that's just something we've got to do. Everybody's got to know where the finish line is. The thing that's interesting about a QB2 is you prepare, you practice, you have the right mindset, but you don't know where the finish line is. You don't know if there is going to be a test. And so I think that makes it a little bit more difficult than most positions because most of the time, you know when it's game time. You know, if you're a backup, you know when you're going to be put in if you're a hoops guy. You know, you're going to be put in after the second, you know, uh, you know, let's say 12 minutes to go in the game you're, or 12 minutes to go in the half. The coach usually puts you in. You know. Or QB2, you don't know. I think that's the one of the hardest things. Okay. Let's pretend that we only have the ability to remember one thing. That's it. What's the one thing about your success formula, your peak performance system, that anybody listening can take away and say, this is this doesn't solve everything. This doesn't make you Superman. But it's the one thing you can't forget. You know, it's like going on a business trip. So, you know, you can forget a lot of things and go to Target and pick it up. But there's this, you can't bring your, you can't forget your laptop. There's certain things you can't forget. What is it in your perspective that you can't forget, can't leave behind? The discernment of knowing what I have control over and what I don't and doing the best I can to give the vast majority of my time, energy, and focus into the things that I have control over and learn to let go and untether from the things that I don't. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, at its core, you know, we have control over our own effort in our own attitude. Well, you can, because I don't want this to be a game of verbal semantics. You can take effort and attitude, mix them together, and you have preparation. 
You're in control of how prepared you are in any situation, i.e. a backup quarterback. You can take uh, effort and attitude, mix them together. You have enthusiasm. You're in control of how enthusiastic you choose to be at any given moment of any given day. You know, you can take effort and attitude, mix them together, and you have action or execution. You know, in sport and in business, the name of the game is execution. It's the doing. It's not the thinking and the hoping and the wishing. It's the actually doing. So we have control over plenty in our lives, but we often as human beings are susceptible to getting caught up and worried about all of the things that we don't have control over. You know, if, if, if you're in business and, and I believe business is the ultimate team sport as well. You know, if you're in business, you know, you don't control the economy or the stock market or, you know, there, there's so many things outside of your control. And it doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It doesn't mean that they don't have a valid impact on your business. It simply means you don't have control of them. And the more time you spend worrying about things you don't have control over takes away from your ability to invest in the things that you do. So I would say the number one thing to always remember and the number one non-negotiable for me is to always keep focused on the things I have control over. And I, you know, over time, I'm progressively getting better at that, but I'm certainly not coming from a place of mastery. You know, I get tripped up and worried about things I don't control over all of the time. But what I can say with a huge smile is I do that a lot less frequently and a lot less often than I used to. So I'm moving in the right direction. And my progress is is aligned with the fact that I'm putting, you know, my focus into what I have control over. Okay, Alan. Do you have kids? I do. I've got uh, almost 14-year-old twin sons and an almost 12-year-old daughter. Okay, your almost 14-year-old twin sons are at the ripe age of when kids typically quit playing sports. Yes. They get burnout. What are, what are parents doing or what, sh- what, are they, what should they stop doing or what should they start doing so that their children, who, you know, it's very beneficial for them to be competitive in sports, learn a lot of life, life lessons regardless of the ball, regardless of the sport, to help them avoid burnout? Well, I don't know if you have another four hours to record, but if so, uh, <laughs> I'm prepared. So I'll yeah, this is a big one. This, I'll try to keep this as succinct as possible because this is something I'm super passionate about. The things parents should be doing is making sure their children know that they love them unconditionally and they want them to enjoy the experience of playing whatever sport they're playing. The, the parents need to stop getting concerned with wins and losses and championships and rankings and scholarships. Those things will come in due time if you focus on the fundamentals, if you focus on having fun, if you focus on learning life lessons that that sport can provide. So it needs to be more about the experience, less about rankings and wins and losses and scholarships. Now, for me, with my own children, here are the four things that are non-negotiable with my kids playing sports. Number one, they need to give the best effort that they're capable of as often as they can. They need to work hard. Number two, they need to be coachable. They need to have humility and they need to listen to what their coach says and to learn from their coach. Number three, they need to be a great teammate. They need to be the type of teammate that they want to play with. So if I ask them to list the traits of their favorite teammates, then I expect those are the things that they'll do themselves. And number four, they need to have fun. You know, at the youth age, if sports aren't fun, there's no reason for you to do them. So as long as my kids are doing those four things, then I will always support, you know, and, and be the, the pseudo uh, Uber driver to all of their, their events. 
Now, as far as what I'd like to see parents do less of, and please know that I don't say this through the lens of judgment. I only say it through the lens of observation because I've been around youth sports literally my entire life. Uh, number one, I would love to see parents stop coaching from the sidelines or stop coaching from the bleachers. Uh, the, the, during the game, it's the coach's job to yell instructions. It's not your job. So for all of the parents sitting in the bleachers yelling, shoot it to their child, I kindly ask for you to refrain doing that. Uh, number two, also refrain from berating the officials. The officials are doing the best job that they can with their level of awareness and the training they have. You know, I, I, it, it's shocking to me that a parent expects perfection from somebody that's refereeing their 10th game on a Saturday for 10-year-olds playing basketball. You know, there's a reason that referee is not in the NBA. It's because they're not as good as NBA referees, yet we simply hold them to this standard that, you know, parents can't believe that they didn't call that travel or didn't call that foul. But, but more importantly, the problem is when parents berate referees or criticize referees or get upset at a call, what they're unconsciously modeling for their son or their daughter is that it's okay to blame someone else. It's okay to make excuses. It's okay to complain. And as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I do everything in my power for me and my children to reduce blaming, complaining, and making excuses. So I certainly don't want to model that behavior uh, by doing that, by yelling at the referees. And the third thing I'd love to see parents refrain from doing is what we call the, the talk in the car ride home or the, the talk at dinner the night of a game. And parents, very well-intended, meaning, you know, well-meaning parents will say some very undermining things about the coach or about the player's teammates. You know, I, I can't believe your coach doesn't play you more, Craig. Your coach is an idiot. You're such a great three-point shooter and he never plays you. Or, you know, I can't believe Johnny is so selfish. He takes such bad shots. He never gives you the ball, you know. And, and I know the reason they do that is to try to take some of the pain away from their child, maybe for not playing a lot or getting a lot of shots. But once again, what they do is they unconsciously model that you can blame others, you can make excuses, and you can complain. And they undermine the coach's ability uh, when when they say those things during those two very influential times. So if parents could uh, pull back and refrain from doing those three things and double down on the things that I mentioned before, I think you'd see youth sports. Uh, we wouldn't see kids quitting uh, at, as rapidly or as early in life as they currently are. That was gold. That was gold. Okay. So I have two boys that I coached. Um, one of them is finishing up his final year of eligibility at a power five school. And the other one's in his second year in the NFL. And he made it as a rookie, played in 16 games last year. And then this year got hurt and then just got picked up a couple of weeks ago wow. and played in his second game um, recently. But the bottom line is I've been a coach dad my entire life. And I had to learn some of these lessons the hard way. And I, I decided that early on when I started seeing this friction, I stopped doing the car ride home conversations. So much so that I even stopped having post-game talks with my teams because they weren't listening anyway. And so the best time to talk to them is the next practice and to bring up with a clear mind, hey, here's two or three things that are like focus points for this week, getting ready for the next game. Um, and then the other thing that I did was I had to communicate with them that, hey, I'm dad, but at practice, I'm coach. Mm -hmm. And as soon as practice is over, the game's over, I'm dad again. 
And so I'm going to, I'm going to coach you just like everybody else on the team. And so it took a minute to uh, sink in. It wasn't the first, what didn't work the first time, but over a period of years, it worked. And I coached him in high school and another, you know, younger. But um, so for those guys that are dad coaches or mom coaches, and they know how great their kid can be, and they're just not seeing the energy and effort, they're just not seeing the performance. What is your perspective for those people? Well, that I have nothing but empathy and compassion for those in that position. I, I've actually made the decision not to coach my children, and that was a very distinct decision. Uh, I just want to be dad sitting at the top of the bleachers cheering my kids on, and I, I love the way that you handled it. Um, you said something very insightful and specific there. You, you said, you know, when, when I'm at home, I'm dad, and when we're at practice, I'm coach. And I, I, I love that, and I believe in that framework. But it's been my experience that too many dads in that example they also try to be coach when they're at home. You know, they're sitting on the couch and they're asking their, their son why they took that shot in the first quarter. And it's like, wait a second, dad, you, you told me when you're home, you're dad and at the gym, you're coach, but now you're being coach while we're sitting on the couch. So, and many times I think it's the parent respectfully that needs to abide by those guidelines if they're going to put those in place. And, uh, you know, cause, cause as the adult and in these relationships, we have to be the one to model that behavior uh, for our children. We also have to realize, and, and to me, this is the hardest part about parenting, is that the, the love has to come from the kids. It can't come from us. I, you know, we're very well-meaning as parents. We want our children to be happy. We want them to be successful. We know that they have what it takes to be an elite performer, and we're just not seeing it. But we have to remind ourselves, you know, I'll just use me. I'll speak in the first person. You know, I'm seeing this through the lens of a 48-year-old. You know, I'm not seeing it through the lens of an almost 14 year old. And, and it's a, it's an unfair standard for me to expect that my almost 14 year old twin sons are going to have the maturity and the wisdom and the emotional intelligence that I've accrued over 48 years. So it's like, I'm angry at them for not seeing what I see. Well, how could they? And if, if I'm truthful and I'm honest and I'm vulnerable, I didn't see those things when I was 14 years old. You know, when I look back when I was 14, I was a knucklehead. I was stubborn. I didn't listen to my parents or my coaches as well as I should have. Now, I realize that now because I have a few more decades of life experience, but I need to, to have the same grace and passion and compassion for my children as I wanted people to have for me when I was that age. So it's, it's definitely tricky. I, I have so much admiration and respect for anyone that does choose to coach their own children because it can be a, a really tough you know, field to navigate. A couple of follow-up thoughts. One is that I learned this from one of my clients in the NFL probably 20 years ago. And he said, football is what I do. It's not who I am. Love that. And I've passed that on to my kids that they are my sons first, second, and third. Yeah. Football is just what they do. And they can quit playing football anytime they want. And I think that what happens with parents sometimes is, is they see their child as a volleyball player or a basketball player. When that, that's your girl, that's your daughter. She just happens to be playing basketball or whatever sport she's playing. So that's number one is that don't misconstrue their identity and definitely don't mix it up with what they do. So keep it separate from who they are. Um, the other part of it is one of my biggest um, ahas was when my daughter was playing soccer. She was about 10. 
she was a goalkeeper and you put the, the worst person at goalkeeper because they don't have to run around and do anything. And she, you know, she would sing in the shower, dance, dance down the stairs, but she played soccer. And so I would take her to these games and I was on the phone most of the time on the sidelines and not really paying as paying attention as much as I should have. But when I was watching her, she wasn't paying attention to the game. She was pulling grass. She was looking at the sky. So I asked her one time on the drive home, I said, hey, baby, why do you play soccer? And she said, because you and mommy take me to practice all the time. And I was like, wow, what do you like to do? Well, what do I do all the time, dad? Sing and dance. So what did she do? She went to college on a musical theater scholarship. You know, and we that was the last season of sports for her because we just assumed because all of our other friends' daughters like to play soccer. So it was a social thing for us. And it was kind of, candidly only a, so, a social thing for her. Yeah. It wasn't anything she liked to do. So I think one of the other parts of this is as a parent, you have to allow your children to explore, to figure out what they do have passion for, because it may or may not be the same as what you have passion for. Oh, man, there, there's so much gold in that. I, I'd love to speak to both of those points. Um, first on the identity, uh, I, I had someone tell me that when I was younger as well. This this is what you do. It's not who you are. And, and that's so important. Where, where we have to look at that through the lens of parenting is, um, and I'm going to speak a little more to the dads here. I know I should never generalize, but we have to make sure our children know that we love them unconditionally. Now, I know that as parents, we do, but often, especially when our kids are young, it can appear as though our love is very conditional to their performance, to the tune of when you play well and you score and you win, I'm happy. And when you don't, I'm a little upset and I'm disappointed. And and kids at, at their younger ages specifically can really misconstrue that. And they can get to the point where they think, well, my dad loves me when I play well and he doesn't when I don't. Now, obviously, as parents, we know that is not the truth, but it really doesn't matter what we say. It's what the kids hear. And their perception is my dad is much happier when I play well and he's upset when I don't. So that's why it's so important that, that we put those boundaries up and say, you know, if you want to be a soccer player, I will support you with everything that I have, but I love you no matter what. And we need to remind our kids of that. Uh, the, the second half of what you shared is, is really beautiful. I'm glad that you had that conversation with your daughter. Uh, I'm glad that she was able to pivot into something that, that actually brought her more joy um, and fulfillment. Uh, it's interesting. I've, I've had this talk with my own children recently. So um, my kids are in eighth and sixth. My, the twin boys are in eighth. My daughter's in sixth. All three of them play basketball. And all three of them about a year ago told me they had the goal of playing college basketball. Now, this wasn't my goal. I don't force it at all. They said this was their goal. Well, at the end of summer, this past summer, I had to have a pretty tough conversation with them. I, I had to let them know that their current level of commitment to the game was not going to be good enough to play college basketball. You know, that, that my kids, they're very, they're good basketball players. And the way I describe it is they like the game of basketball, but they don't love it. Like they like going to practice and they like playing in games, but they're not obsessed with working on their game, you know, two to three hours a day. And, and I'm of the belief that in today's day and age, that's what it takes to play college basketball. So what I shared with them was, you know, one of two things needs to change. Either you need to go a little harder on your commitment and actually go all in in this pursuit of the goal of playing college basketball. 
You know, you need to be doing some, some body weight strength exercises two to three times a week. You need to be working on your handle and making two to three or four or 500 jump shots every single day. You know, you need to be working on your craft every day between now and 12th grade to give yourself that chance. Or you can choose that you don't want to play college basketball, that you just want to play basketball in middle school and high school because it's fun. And there is nothing wrong with that. I looked them each in the eye and said, I will love you nonetheless, no matter what you decide. But there's a fork in the road and you need to decide which way you're going to go, because I'm not going to let you straddle and say you want to be a college basketball player, but have a very mediocre commitment to the game. So I, I said, hey, there's no pressure for me. You can decide whatever you want. And it's not like you have to decide today. You can decide whenever you want. But I just want you to know that if you decide that you want to pursue an ambitious goal like that, which less than 1% of everyone currently dribbling a basketball will play the game in college, then you got to go all in. And whether you choose to or not is irrelevant. But I just need to make sure your belief and your behaviors are in alignment. And it was it was a great talk. Um, you know, I think the jury's still out on ultimately what they're going to choose to do. Um, but I just felt as their father, it was my job to set realistic expectations for them. Okay. So I'm going to go deep on you, Alan. Okay. Um, I've had those conversations. And one of the things that happens is sometimes they can go all in. And it still doesn't happen. Yes. So it's, you can either like... Take a detour now because your commitment and your passion isn't as great as you, you know, it needs to be, or you thought it, thought you had, or you can go all in, but there's still no guarantee. Exactly. So I had one son that had 21, 23 D one offers and the other one had zero and they both did the same thing. Right. They both loved the game and they both put in the time. Um, they were both both very intentional about how they learned the sport, but also kept a balance in their life so they didn't get burnt out. But one of them had to go to five schools before he got to D1 school. Wow. So you know that passion was deep for that young man. Yeah. So one of the things I would challenge you with with your children is the idea of letting them know that it's okay at any time to hit the eject button. But yes. if that's your goal today, let's go. Yeah. But along the way, they may find out, hey, they don't grow as tall as they need to be. They're not as quick. They, No matter how how many hours they spend in the gym. Yes. They could spend five hours in the gym every single day shooting millions of shots and doing quickness and agility and acceleration, all those type of you know training, and let them know that you give them permission to hit the eject button. Anytime they want. Yes. So, so well said. And, and I'll even take it a step further and remind them that, yeah, and, and I'm so glad you brought up that point because that, that can be a blind spot, especially for the kids, but letting them know you also have permission to fail. You have permission to fall short of your goal. That there, there's, there's still something incredibly noble about someone that goes all in and does everything they can to pursue a goal and they still fall short. I would much rather be that person than be the one who chose not to. And then 30 years later, looks back and goes, you know, the woulda, couldas and shouldas. Um, but you bring up an excellent point. You know, hard work and working smart and being consistent um, does not guarantee success. But if you don't do those things, you're almost guaranteed to fail. So, you know, letting them know 
that, that there's, there's nothing wrong with going all after something. And I, I've even shared with them. So, you know, by vocation, I'm a professional keynote speaker. I'm a corporate keynote speaker. And, and I set a very ambitious goal um, for 2023, a revenue goal that I wanted to hit in my business. And I fell 15% short of it. You know, I fell, I fell a little short of the goal that I had set. Yet, I doubled what I did in my business last year. And last year was the best year I'd had up, you know, at present. So on one hand, it's very bittersweet. On one hand, you know, it's a little disappointing to fall short of a goal because I gave it everything I had. But at the same time, I can be very proud of the fact that it was the best year that I've ever had. And, and I share these types of things with my children all the time. And I think it's important that parents um, are very transparent and vulnerable and honest about sharing their own shortcomings and their own failures and their own missteps. Because many times our kids, as crazy as this sound, can, can kind of put us on a pedestal and idealize who we are and think, man, you know, uh, my dad can do no wrong. And it's like, oh no, your dad can do plenty wrong. And he has and does. And I'm going to share some of those things with you. Because what I don't want is I don't want my kids to quit because they're afraid of, well, what if I don't get that scholarship? Instead, I want them to say, no, you go after it with everything you can. If you don't get it for any reason, we'll discuss it at that time. But I promise you, you'll be stronger just in the attempt. Well, something that comes to my mind when you're speaking about that is the importance of being in the arena. You know, if you're in the gladiator business and you never step in the arena, you're really not, you're really not doing it. So like for you coming 15% short of your goal, who cares? You were in oh, the yeah. arena. You, you more than, you know, you, you came close to doubling or whatever it was the previous year. But the bottom line is for your kids, they need to be in the arena. Yes. Okay. If there's something special, whether there's 200 people in the stands, 10 or 10,000, doesn't matter. All eyes are on you. You're shooting free throw, right? That doesn't happen in English class. That doesn't happen in math class. Might happen in speech class, but not very many classes. So it's like one of the beautiful things about sport is the opportunity to demonstrate your skills that you've been practicing in the dark, yes. in the light, in front of people. And it's, it's not whether you win or lose. It's whether you give it all you got or not. Yes. And so... I think there's a um, decrease in participation in high school sports because kids decide too early that it's too hard or too the probability is too low to get a scholarship. Right. Well, well, you bring up an interesting point, and that's where I think as parents, this kind of comes down to the, the conversation of outcome versus process. If the reason you are playing is to get a college scholarship, then it's, it's zeros and ones. It's all or nothing. It's zero sum. Either you get it or you don't. If the reason you're playing the sport is because it brings you enjoyment and you love being a part of a team and you like being physically fit and you like watching yourself improve and progress and you like, like, if that's the reason you're playing, then you've already won in advance. Uh, any scholarship would simply be a cherry on top of the Sunday. So, so that's what I think in all of our lives, we have to be very careful about heavily weighting outcomes because we don't always get the outcomes that we prefer. Uh, but where if you learn to love the process and that's where I can say with a huge smile, yeah, I fell 15% short of my goal and I don't care because I love what I do. 
I love the process. I got to work with some great clients and be on some great stages. This motivates me to try and beat my goal next year. But, but I wasn't hinging on, is my entire year successful if I hit the goal or not? It's not zeros and ones. There's much more nuance to that. And, and to me, that's where that, that we often as parents get it wrong with the, our kids is we make it seem like if you don't get the college scholarship, then all of this was for nothing. All of this was a waste. You know what? No, nothing could be further from the truth. The whole reason we should want our kids to play sports is because of the enjoyment and the fun and the camaraderie and the life lessons that they learn and the memories and the experience because no one can take those things away. And, and to me, that's the part we need to double down on and heavily emphasize. And if it turns out that any of us have kids that are capable of playing at that next level, then that's wonderful. That's just an extra bonus, but that's not the reason to play. And that's that's where I see even at, in, at younger ages of youth sports, you know, the parents are acting like whoever wins this 10-year-old AAU game, you know, <laughs> like it's life or death. And it's like, no, this is just one of hundreds of games they're going to play in their career. So just cheer them on and, and have some fun and the, the, let the chips fall where they may. Alan, one of the things I noticed when I was coaching basketball at the youth level was the impact of scoreboard watching. And that's the outcomes. And what I noticed was two very interesting things. One is when, when you look up at the scoreboard and you're way ahead, you change your game. Let's say you're really not paying attention. You're in the game. You're up by 10 or 12 early in the first quarter. I mean, everything's going in. Make your first four threes and you're up 12-0. All of a sudden, you throw, the, the players throw out the coach's game plan. They stop sharing the ball. They stop running the plays. And they, they have this selfish mindset. I'm going to get mine. Man, we're ahead that far. I'm going to get mine. I haven't even had a shot yet. We made our first four. We got 12 points on the board. I haven't even shot yet. So I'm going to shoot them every time I get the ball. Next thing you know, the score is about even again. <laughs> the same thing happens when you're way behind. You go, you know what? I've only got 10 points. The game's almost, you know, we're in the fourth quarter or whatever it might be. And um, we're probably not going to win. So I got to get my average. <laughs> you know, grandpa is, pay is paying me, um, you know, a dollar a point. And my parents are going to take me to get smoothies and ice cream if we win or whatever. And we're not going to win. So it's like, I'm just going to get mine. So it, def it really um, defeats the integrity of team when people start watching the scoreboard. Thoughts on that? Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, what I tell players and coaches and my own children all the time, when you make the decision to be a part of a team, you are making the decision to be a part of something bigger than yourself, which means you need to sacrifice some of the me for the we. That, that what you need to be focused on is fulfilling your role to the best of your ability to give your team the best chance to be successful. And anything you do that undermines that is an act of selfishness. Anything you do that undermines your ability to make a maximum contribution so the team can be successful is an act of selfishness. And selfishness is what erodes, you know, team and organizational performance. So yeah, I, I love, we, we call those my turn shots. You know, hey, Craig's taking the last three shots. It's my turn. Well, no, not necessarily. You know, you can't predetermine who's going to shoot the ball. It has to do with who's open and then the flow of the offense and time and score and range and all that, you know, but, but yes, at the youth level, that happens all of the time. 
anytime a player is more concerned with their own scoring average than they are with making the right play or the right contribution to the team, then we have a problem. But once again, you know, I, I don't place blame on players. Uh, as adults, as parents, and as coaches, it's our job to instill these values and to model these things. You know, I'm willing to bet, you know, if you pulled all of the parents in high school basketball right now and put them on a lie detector test and said, would you prefer that your child's team wins the state championship or would you prefer your child makes the all state team? An overwhelming majority of parents would prefer their child makes the all state team. And that's where the root of this is. Like even unconsciously, they would prefer that their child is more successful than the team. And that's where we have a problem. Now, all of these things are understandable. And I don't say them with an ounce of judgment. Shoot. If you would have asked me when I was in high school, if I would have rather, rather made the all state team or won a state championship, I was incredibly selfish when I was younger. I'd have been like, Oh, I'd rather be an all state player, you know? But that doesn't mean it was right. And now looking back with a little more wisdom and maturity, I can see that that I often made decisions that were in my own best interest, but were not in the best interest of the team. And now that I'm older and I work with organizations and teams and coaches all the time, I'm trying to undo that. Like I've seen both sides of that. And, and when you can have a, a group of, of players in any sport at any level that are truly committed to the team's goal and are, are we first instead of me first, they will always overachieve. Now, the talent ultimately wins. So if they don't have the requisite talent, I'm not saying they're going to win a state championship. All I'm saying is when you have a group of people that are selfless instead of selfish and, and are caring about the we and not the me, they will over-index and overachieve whatever they would do with that selfish mentality. Here's the irony. The team that wins the state championship has more players make the all-state team. Oh yeah, the the voters and the media and whoever the, the coaches, the the voting parties, always look at who wins, and gives more recognition to those individuals than to the guy that you know threw in thirty five points again. Don't get me wrong; if you're the leading scorer in the state, you're going to make all state. But if you're on a winning team, you're going to get recognized more than maybe you even deserve. Okay. I got to share a quick story. I was coaching a basketball team, sixth graders. We were 18 and 0 going into the state championship of a club tournament. And we're in the final game. And we had, we played, we had about nine players. We played everybody. But in this particular game, tight game, fourth quarter, there was two boys that hadn't played. I called a timeout in the fourth quarter because it was critical. And I look over and there's two boys sitting on the end of the bench that didn't join the group, the, the huddle. So I went over there and I said, hey, guys, what's going on? They were crying. And I'm like, hey, what's up? We just want to play. We just want to play. One of the things parents need to understand, and coaches maybe even more, is that everybody wants to play more than they want to win. Because you put the time in, you love the game, or you wouldn't be playing the sport. They just want to show out and show up and, and perform. And it's... You know, it's uncanny how things happen. Those were sixth graders. By the time they were 12th graders, out of those nine boys, only four were still playing basketball. And the two that were in the end of the bench were the two best of the nine. Nice. They were both all state. They won a state championship for their high school. So I think the thing that you're pointing out is that 
you know, this is this is a long game. This is not today. I mean, yes, being in the moment is today. It's being in the moment you're in. But when you look at youth sports, you can't look at the short game. You got to look at the long game. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, and we need to take that advice for our own lives because it's even, there's an even longer tail to the kite when you're done playing sports. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. think about, you know, I'm, I mentioned I'm 48 years old. Now I have the optimism that I'm going to live another 50 years. I have no plans of, of leaving this world before 100, which means technically I'm almost at halftime of my life. And, and my goal, just like any good coach, is to make sure that we make some halftime adjustments and we play a better second half than we played in the first half. And I'm going to do that in my own life. I plan to take all of these lessons that I've learned in my teens and 20s and 30s and 40s, and I'm going to course correct and apply those. So I have the optimism and the confidence and the belief that my next 50 years will be my best 50 years. And it's same thing in any area of our life. We, we should be doing this to play the long game. Same thing with my career as a, a corporate keynote speaker. I mentioned I had a goal for this year, but I'm in this for the long term. I'm building relationships and planting seeds now that might not sprout for another two, three, four, five years. But I'm okay with that because I'm still going to be in this game in two, three, four, five years from now. So yes, a reminder to all of the parents who have younger children, yet you've got plenty of time for them to continue to develop and to grow and to mature. And you might have your, your son might be on the end of the bench, not playing in sixth grade. And they could end up being an all-state player in 12th grade if we continue to make it a fun and enjoyable and enriching experience where they want to keep playing. And we, we love them unconditionally. We support them. You know, we hold them accountable to a high standard of excellence, but we put them in positions where they can continue to grow and improve. And I, I love that you shared that story. I appreciate that story. Um, that's one I'll share with my own children because, you know, sometimes they find themselves on the end of the bench and not playing as much as they would like. And I always remind them that, you know, when, when that's happening, when you're not getting your preference, you know, what you need to do is, you know, you need to go talk to your coach and ask them how you can earn more playing time. What do you need to do? You need to take extreme ownership. You don't blame the coach. You don't say, Oh, the coach doesn't like me or the coach isn't playing me. You ask the coach, what in my game do I need to improve for you to have more confidence in me to play during the games? And then the next thing you need to do is if you only get one minute a game, you need to give that one minute everything you've got. You need to play as hard and as smart and as unselfishly as you can for one minute. Because if you do and you have somewhat of a decent coach, that one minute will turn to two minutes and that two minutes will turn to four minutes. And slowly over time, you'll earn more time on the court. But then once you're on the court, you got to deliver the goods. Like you've got to make the right plays at the right time and add value. And it's it's your opportunity to do that. And the best time to work on that is during what we call the unseen hours. It's coming into practice early and it's staying late. It's not just doing the required work. You're required to be at practice. You're not required to come in 30 minutes early or stay 30 minutes late. That's the unrequired work. But that's the work that will allow you to separate yourself and to earn more opportunities. And to your point earlier, which was so spot on, even doing this does not guarantee you'll get any more playing time. But if you don't do this, I guarantee that you won't. Okay, Alan, I feel called to share something with you that it's all semantics. You know, we can mix it all together, but I have a cardinal rule. You never go talk to your coach. 
And the reason why is because coaches, they look down on players that come and talk to them. And it doesn't matter where your heart's at. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter if you go to the coach and go, hey, coach, I'm not complaining about my playing time. I just want to know how to be better. Here's what I can tell you from being in the sports business for 30-plus years, having a couple of boys have gone through this, and, and coached and mentored several clients through, you already know what the coach is going to say. So when when you have that idea to go talk to the coach, go ahead and have that conversation, but not with the coach present. Go ahead and ask yourself, what is the coach? Why is the coach playing this guy instead of me? Why is this guy playing more time? What is he looking for that I'm not doing? What can I do more of? And answer your own question. Because what I have found, and this this is where I'm, sports has never been a level playing field. It's never no. been fair. We could go play golf and you could get a, a birdie. I could get a par. I hit a better drive. You bounce one off the tree onto the green, into the hole, and get an eagle. Fair? So it's not, it's not fair. Right. So what the Pro Mindset program and framework is about is your story, your systems, and your stage. And you've got to write a new story to get to a different place. You have to work your systems. And you have to win the stage. And you get to define what winning is. But let's stick to the story. On the story part, it's all about beingness. It's all about who you are. And so, like, sometimes the guy at the end of the bench is being something that the coach, he's looking for something different at practice. Might be looking for more energy, effort, attentiveness, you know, diving for the ball, making smarter decisions, whatever it may be. And so for what, for that player, he could go shoot, you know, 500 shots a day and become really dead, you know, a deadly three-pointer shooter. The coach still won't play. He's like, why am I not playing? I'm the best shooter on the team. It has nothing to do with your talent. It has everything to do with your beingness. So I tell people to be very conscientious about who they are, what their story is, what the story they tell themselves. because. That matters. It, you basically show up at practice in an energy bubble. And the coach already makes it like, let's say, for example, um, your, your son showed up at a, on a basketball team and the first time they show up was the same time everyone else showed up. It just so happened to be the first game. They had no practices and the coach was not allowed to watch them in warmups shoot layups. That coach has to make a decision for a starting five just on energy. <laughs> intuition vibe you call it what you want and that coach might pick the right five people so that's very difficult at 14 for a young man to understand that man sometimes you make the shot before you shoot it you win the game before you play it and the coach makes a decision about you before you do anything because of how you your body language your just everything about you so i'm not saying they've got to go through a transformation of their identity, but they got to be aware of what it is. And if the coach is not responding to them, the way my, one of my son's biggest complaint, not supposed to complain, but he complains to me. Coach doesn't see me like I see me. How would you coach an athlete in that situation? Well, yeah, I would reframe the expectation and say, yeah, of course your coach doesn't see you the way see 
you see yourself because you're two completely different people with different experiences and different biases and different vantage points. So that's why, and, and, and I love that you pushed back on, on my encouraging of people to go, you know, of players to talk to their coaches. A good friend and mentor of mine, Jay Billis, always uses the line that reasonable minds may differ. And, and I love, and I think what we're having here, it's okay for you and I to have a slightly different perspective on the way to approach something. We can have an educated, civil, and respectful dialogue and discussion about that, which on a separate note is something I think is vastly missing in society today is people being able to talk about something that they view differently. But to that point, you know, I would encourage my son in this case to talk to the coach. And, and, and I know that you view that differently, but I would say, I would actually say that to the coach, you know, coach, I'm having some confusion. I feel like you see me and my talent and my abilities differently than I see it in myself. I'm so curious and fascinated to know what you think or to what you see or, or what do you think I do well or what do you think is holding me back? See, it's been my experience in every area of life. When we lean in with curiosity and fascination, instead of leaning in with judgment or criticism, it opens the world up to, to entirely new possibilities and opportunities. So instead of, let's just use this as a hypothetical, not any one specific child, but instead of a player going and, and saying, you know, coach, you just don't get me. You know, I don't know what you're seeing out there, man. I'm a great shooter and you never seem to play me. You know, that's leaning in with judgment and criticism, which is going to cause the coach to be defensive and to deflect. Whereas if you lean in with curiosity and go, I, I would love to know what you see, coach. I have so much respect and admiration and I trust you as my coach but I feel like there's a slight disconnect right now. I feel like you're not seeing what I believe I can bring to the table. And I would love for us just to be able to discuss it and, and, and maybe get on the same page. And, and if you have a coach that is at least open to that dialogue, then you can have the conversation. And what in, inevitably will happen is someone will most likely expose a blind spot. I love your example earlier where you said, you know, the player's thinking I'm the best shooter on the team. And the coach is thinking, I don't care how good of a shooter you are. You don't bring very much energy. You don't box out and you don't play defense. So as, no matter how good of a shooter you are, if you don't do those things, you don't play for me. But that might be a blind spot for the kid. They might not even be aware of the fact that that's the coach's criteria. They're just thinking, hey, every time in practice, I make eight out of 10 three-pointers and this guy still doesn't play me. So that's why if they had open dialogue and the coach could say, yeah, you are a great shooter, Craig. But, you know, you couldn't play dead in a cowboy movie. So if you ain't going to guard anybody, then I can't put you in the game. Because in my on my teams, we heavily value defense. We heavily value energy and enthusiasm. We heavily value guys that take charges and die for loose balls. And while you are a great shooter, I don't think you do those other things. And therefore, you're not going to play very much. And now it's crystal clear to the player. And the player can make the decision whether to do those things and earn more time on the court or choose not to, but it'd be the, 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 about exposing a blind spot. And the last thing I'll say, and back to the, the youth part, the reason I do encourage my children to talk to their coach when they have an issue, I don't talk to the coach about it whatsoever. I want my kids to have ownership of their own lives and ownership of their own direction. And I tell them, you know, if you have an issue with something, you don't come whine to me. And then I go talk to the coach. You guys are almost 14 years old. If you have an issue, then you need to talk to your coach man to man and you do it in a very respectful way. You understand that that coach is in charge. They are the CEO of your basketball program and they are the decision maker and you treat them with that respect and civility. 
but you are allowed to speak up if you have a question or you're not, you're uncertain about something, but I'm not going to do that for you. And, um, that, that's the reason I encourage the players to do it. Whereas I think we live in a society today where the parent is the one talking to the coach, you know, Craig, why aren't you playing my kid? He's clearly the best shooter. What is wrong with you? You're always playing favorites. You're playing your kid more than my kid. What's going on? I don't believe in any of that mess. I, I never talk to our, our, our coaches, my kids' coaches about playing time. I never talk to them about anybody else's child on the team. Uh, I don't talk to them about anything other than just exchange pleasantries and thank them for the, the commitment that they make to pouring into my children. Because at the youth level, I mean, it's primarily a volunteer, voca- a volunteer vocation. You know, these youth coaches aren't making a ton of money. They're doing it because they care about young people and they care about growing the sport that they love. And I always want to support that. So you'll never see me as a parent questioning any coaches X's and O's or questioning their playing time. If my kids have an issue, they can go talk to them because they need to have extreme ownership. Well, here's the thing I will respond to that because this is my rebuttal. I love your response because you qualified it. And you said that great body language. You're not going to ask them about playing time. You're going to ask them. You're basically going to take this curiosity uh, posture. Um, Hey, I'm just kind of curious how, you know, what do I need to work on? That's fair. That's fair. I'll, I'll buy that. What typically happens is coaches get defensive and it, it does go to play time because the, if, if you're playing a lot, you never go talk to the coach typically. <laughs> so when you say you're curious about how you can get better, the coach is herein, and this is a filter they have. Why am I not playing more? So that's the problem is that unless you have a coach that is receptive, and you have a player that has this, like, just okayness about just tell me what I can do better because I love, I love the sport and I want to, I want to help our team more. If you can get those two together, it can work. Absolutely. But at the high levels, most coaches, I'm not talking about youth now at the high levels. Oh, yeah. They don't even, dude, I've told you a million times what you need to do. Every time I, so this is, this is, this is what I tell, uh, pros. Every time a coach gives criticism, constructive or not, pretend like it's for you. Yeah. Well said. Every time. That way you can understand his playbook and what his expectations are. And, it can avoid you. You don't have to make the mistake to get the criticism because you're learning from someone else's mistake. Well said. Okay. Okay. I want to, I, you've been awesome and I haven't even asked you um, a couple important things. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you these. Okay. You've been associated with some high profile NBA guys, Steph Curry, Kobe, um, Kevin Durant, what did you learn from them that you couldn't have learned from your neighbor? Not nothing against your neighbor, but or you know people, just mainstream people. What was the extra that they had that the average person doesn't typically have? They have a strong respect and appreciation for the fundamentals and the basic building blocks. 
I was always under the the illusion that high performers uh, were busy doing the sexy and the flashy and the new. That's not the case. It's been my experience that high performers in basketball, business, and anything in between work towards mastery of the basics and mastery of the fundamentals relentlessly during the unseen hours. They don't look to skip steps. You know, the reason somebody like a Kobe Bryant was able to have such a lethal turnaround jumper is not because he could do that when he was 10 years old. It's because he built each of the building blocks that required to be able to make that type of move, you know, and, and would work on the basics incessantly during those unseen hours. So to me, that's what my neighbor doesn't get. My neighbor thinks there's a shortcut to success. My neighbor thinks there's a hack. My neighbor thinks that I can do just a couple repetitions and I'm going to be pretty good at something. Whereas somebody like Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry realized, no, you, you're, you'll never actually reach true mastery. Now you can get to a razor's thin edge, but if you want to be an elite level player or an elite level shooter, I mean, it requires thousands and thousands and thousands of task specific repetitions and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours during the unseen hours working on your craft in order to have that level uh, on the court. So to me, what my neighbor doesn't get is they think there's an easy way, there's a shortcut, there's a hack, uh, when the real way to get there is you build your foundation on the fundamentals. And, you know, the fundamentals in basketball are obvious, shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, and handling the ball. It's also your how well you take care of your body and your athleticism. It's also your basketball IQ and your understanding of the game. It's also your grit and your motor and your stick Like all of that is the stuff that needs to be focused on. Uh, so it's not a matter of, of, you know, I'm going to follow this training program for three weeks and I'm going to be the best shooter in the world. No, it takes consistent effort. And, and you know, I, I don't know if the Warriors are playing tonight at the time of this recording, but if they are and Steph Curry drops 60 points tonight and, you know, knocks down 11 three pointers, that won't be by accident. That will because that young man has put in more hours and taken more jump shots when no one was watching than almost anyone else in existence. It's cause and effect. It's not, it's not luck or it's not accident. And that's what I think most of the general population, including my neighbor, doesn't understand. That how well we perform when the lights are on is heavily dictated by what we do when the lights are off. The cameras aren't rolling and the cheerleaders aren't dancing. It's the commitment to craft behind the scenes. And, and I try and use that as my own operating system for every area of my life uh, is working on the basics and the fundamentals of fatherhood, the basics and the fundamentals of being a keynote speaker, the basics and the fundamentals of being a small business owner. I figure out what those basics are, and that's what gets most of my time, energy, and attention. Fantastic. Last question, Alan. You're the author of two books. Raise your game, sustain your game. What is the secret sauce in your in the first one? Raise your game and also in sustain. Well, with raise your game, it's it's kind of threefold. And this is a beautiful way for us to put a nice red bow tie on this really awesome conversation because I've covered each of these, including what I just mentioned. The main the main focal points of raise your game uh, is learn to focus on the process and the basics during the unseen hours. Learn to blend confidence with humility. So earn the right to be confident, but always remain humble enough to stay open to coaching, to stay open to feedback, and to know that no matter how good you get, you can still get better. 
And then it's also about learning to embrace the process and love the work. It's not just about the accolades and the achievements and the awards. It's about actually loving the work. And when you love the work, then you've already won in advance. It doesn't matter what the scoreboard says or what ESPN says or the newspaper said. You've already won in advance because you're doing something that you truly find fulfillment in. So that's kind of the, the focal point of raise your game. Uh, sustain your game is it's been my experience that there's three things that will knock us off the top of the mountain if we're fortunate enough to get there. And that's stress, stagnation, and burnout. So the whole point of sustain your game was to offer practical tools and strategies to make sure we can manage stress, we can avoid stagnation, and we can beat burnout. Because if we can, if we can ward off those three things, then we have the ability to perform at a high level of excellence for a really long sustained period of time. What comes to mind just listening to you was my relationship with me, my relationship with the game, and my relationship with my circumstances. And and it, not just the relationship to those things, but our response to when it's not how we hoped it would be. Um, Alan, I want to thank you very much for being on Pro Mindset today. It was an awesome conversation. It flew by. Uh, I can tell you've got a lot of energy. You've got a, your kids are lucky to have you as a dad. I wish you nothing but awesome success in your keynote speaking world. And how can people find your book, find your books, or find you if they're looking to have you be a speaker? Well, this was a lot of fun for me. I really appreciate all the questions you ask and the, the insight and the stories that you told. So this was this was really enjoyable. Uh, my website is the hub of everything I do, which is just allensteinjr.com. Uh, I'm very accessible and responsive on social media. So at Alan Stein Jr. Uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, I guess we're calling it X now instead of Twitter uh, and YouTube. Uh, if something about our conversation, you know, struck a chord or someone wants to share something or ask something, just shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn. I'm very good about getting back to people. And then as you mentioned, Craig, I have two books, Raise Your Game and Sustain Your Game. Uh, you can get those on Amazon or Audible or wherever you like to get your books and audio books. But this was so much fun for me, man. Keep up your great work. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, I hope we stay in touch after this. Absolutely. Thank you, Alan. It's Craig Doman, the host of Pro Mindset Podcast. I want to thank you for listening or watching today's show. And you can catch us every week on the normal social media platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and all the listening uh, podcast platforms. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And more importantly, I hope you gained a Pro Mindset insight. Please be sure to rate and review Pro Mindset Podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you on our next show.